Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 268, and today's guest is Jeffrey L. Bowman, CEO and co-founder of Reframe, the first tech-enabled change management platform that helps build inclusive employee and customer experiences at scale. From what I've noticed by working with hundreds of tech startups through the years is that the companies that are the most successful at building a diverse and inclusive workforce start from the very early days of the company and make it a priority. It ultimately becomes more and more difficult to change the course as the company grows and scales, especially if you're talking about larger Fortune 500 companies. Well, Jeffrey has been working to help change the narrative around this very important topic, and throughout our conversation, he gives so many great insights into things like the current state of diversity in the tech industry, historical references, and advice for founders on how to build a solid foundation for a diverse workforce through its mission, vision, and value statements. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover lots of other great topics, like Jeffrey's background story and his experience in sales, then in various marketing positions after completing his MBA, his experience at Ogilvy & Mather, where he pioneered the industry's first cross-cultural practice that modernized the marketing and communications industry, what led Jeffrey down the path of starting Reframe, and how he was able to productize the company's services with a software platform, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other fun tidbits. Sign up at VentureFizz.com slash register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jeffrey. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. No, Keith, thank you for having us and uh, delighted to be with you and hope it sounds like we're in great company. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because, yeah, there's a lot to talk about as it relates to you as an entrepreneur, your experience prior, what you're building with Reframe, uh, which is very, very important. And uh, as a branch of that, to kind of kick things off, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk about uh, the tech industry and as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, I think companies are trying to make great strides to improve there and trying to build a more inclusive employee experience. But uh, I wanted to talk to you since you're a subject matter expert on, you know, has there been progress over the past two to three years as it relates to that? Yeah, no, great question to, to kick off this conversation because I think, um, you know, all of us remember like two significant events over the last couple of years. One obviously being COVID and the second being uh, George Floyd incident. And exactly. for many companies, um, there was a lot of, uh, things being planned, a lot of things being announced, uh, somewhat performative in some case. Um, but to answer your question, no, there, there really hasn't been any change, um, unfortunately, because I think, you know, what we like to say and say to clients is that, you know, the phenomena that, that, that happened was probably uh, even more uh, observed because of your, your employees were at home. And, and a lot of the content associated with George Floyd was digital. And so, you know, because they're at home, uh, they saw it and then obviously impacted the workplace because the workplace was not in an office. And so you were right to take the action, those actions that you did. But unfortunately, a lot of companies fell short because they didn't put any structural changes. They didn't transform uh, from an enterprise perspective so that, as we call this new America, uh, Gen Z, millennials come into the workplace, uh, companies you know, have to go beyond performative uh, actions and really uh, you know, establish key things structurally uh, that they need to change so that it's sustainable over a lifetime. Yeah. So it's not just a social media campaign that's going to accomplish what we need to accomplish here. Uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about reframe, which is the heart of what you do. So we're going to pause that conversation because we're going to get deeper into that and how you guys actually help with that building blocks of a company and restructuring. So let's rewind the clock in terms of your background and, you know, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, no, I grew up in, in uh, a big town of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, you know, it's a, a town that's about 45 minutes away from Charlotte. It's about three and a half hours away from Atlanta. It's in the upstate, not Charleston on the coast, as, as most people ask me. 
And as a kid growing up, uh, did a lot in, you know, playing outside as, as a kid. Uh, but what really struck me uh, was this new thing that, you know, not a lot of kids were asking for for Christmas. It was called a Commodore VIC-20. Oh, yes. And that was like, <laughs> whoa, that's what I want. And that was really my first introduction to tech. Yep. Um, and then the following came Commodore 64. So you took those bad boys apart. You had a dot matrix printer and, um, and you, were, you were ready to go. And nice so floppy that, disk hard drive. Floppy disk hard floppy drive, drive. Accessory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was really my first introduction to tech. And, and that, you know, as I went from elementary to middle school, middle school to high school, in the back of my mind, I was always saying, like, how do I get into this thing? So that was really my early beginnings. So why did you decide to study marketing at South Carolina State? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I tell people I had three jobs in high school. And obviously going to school, I was athletic. I ran track. Uh, I pole vaulted. And I always went to places most people don't go to uh, as it relates to pole vaulting. Um, and so with South Carolina State University, I uh, got the opportunity to win both an academic and athletic scholarship. And so, you know, that was really uh, no option, no other options for me, given the, the significant financial contribution to South Carolina State. So HBCU, in terms of historically black college and university, land-grown institution, 1896. And so for me, I went into marketing because as I worked Kenny shoes, I drove a school bus, believe it or not, in South Carolina, 16, once you got your license, you could actually drive other kids around. Wow. <laughs> that was way back. Um, and, and, and I worked in Kenny Shoes and we had different district managers come through who would help us train, meet our sales goal, meet our quotas. And a lot of times as I would ask them, it's like, hey, you know, what did you major in? And, and a lot of them would say business. I'd say, okay. Then I heard marketing. And so I look at commercials and so forth. And I say, and they say, hey, if you want to do that, you have to go in marketing. And so that's, that was my big influence for me. Uh, wanting to go to South Carolina State and go into marketing. Pole vault. Okay, so that out of a track and field, like because I I I I did track my junior year going. To, so I played football and it was a way for all of us to stay in shape. And me and a, a friend of mine we were like, "What's this pole thing that?" We, yeah. <laughs> so we actually tried it and failed miserably, and um, it was incredibly difficult. So yeah. how, do you, yeah. how did you get to the point where you're actually really good at it? No, you know, it's, it's, I like to say I had to choose a sport by accident. And what I mean by that, my passion originally sports-wise was football. And, 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 you know, in the South, you know, football is like, you know, a religion. It's everything, and, yeah. And kids grow up really fast and really quick. And so I stopped growing at about, in, in junior high school, about five, six, and we had a huge running back that was about six feet and we hit head on I was fearless and I had a concussion stars running around and my coach said hey Bowman you may want to think about another sport given the size and so then I chose rest wrestling so I wrestled uh, from seventh grade all the way up until until 12th grade was fourth in the state of South Carolina but what kept what I kept looking at is I was sitting in class, but I could see the track was that pit and the runway. And I asked the track coach, like, hey, I want to try this. And, um, and I made the first thing that most pole vultures have to learn. You got to learn how to fall. And so I had a huge upper body strength and, you know, had the courage and the willingness to do it. Then over time, I went out in the fall and by the time spring came around, I was jumping about 10.6, which is not that high, but it was high enough to get me started. And then my best was about 14.8. Um, for most schools at that time, especially HBCUs, not a lot of black pole vaulters. And so I was uh, a sample of one and, and got offered the opportunity at South Carolina State and uh, had an amazing you know, collegiate career, uh, participated in MEAC, Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, and uh, it was great. Uh, our team won the MEAC every year I was there. Uh, some qualified for the nationals, but for me, it was a way to balance uh, my athletic ability with my academic. 
and my academic really helped me get to where I am today. That's awesome. Love that. So what'd you do out of school? So I got the amazing opportunity at South Carolina State um, to intern with Pepsi. Um, and at the time, and then we'll have a full circle moment, Pepsi offered, um, if you think about what's happening today, and we talked about tech, you know, Amazon set up like this Howard campus uh, on their campus to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, for me, Pepsi had a, what they call site summer internship program for diverse prospects, meaning they wanted to start from right out of undergrad, uh, training, developing uh, black and brown managers to become leaders within their talent pipeline. And so I got accepted into that program as a sophomore to my sophomore summer, junior summer. Um, I interned in Knoxville, Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee Spartanburg, South Carolina, second summer, and then got a job as a district sales manager trainee in Augusta, Georgia. And so that's what got me in, you know, into the pathway uh, of starting marketing. Um, but first starting with sales, sales enablement, managing a route of about 13 uh, uh, route drivers. So what did that experience teach you as it relates to kind of that foundational sales and, and management of, you know, the route drivers? You know, I tell people all the time, um, Pepsi was the best thing that happened to me. And the reason for that is because, you know, before, you know, a lot of people, sometimes they'll go to undergrad and maybe get their MBA and they immediately go into strategy. But Pepsi, I got a chance to learn every class of trade there is, meaning I got a chance to walk through the back doors, on the floors, on the shelves, of how to sell Pepsi, people would think it, it, was, it was easy. You're competing against Coke. You're in between North Carolina, South Carolina. North Carolina was where, I'm sorry, South Carolina and Georgia. North Carolina was Pepsi was found. Georgia was where Coke was found. So I'm right in the middle. Um, and the biggest thing that happened out of that experience was this thing called New Age Beverages. I was the first to help sell, my, me and my team anyway, first to sell water uh, to people who were saying, oh. why am I buying that bottle of water? Right. It'll never work. And so I had Pepsi and they had what they call new age beverages, which were teas, which everybody drinks now, water and isotonics. At that time, they competed against Gatorade. And so what it taught me was first, you know, how do you understand the wants and needs of a customer? How you're in service to serve them, not the other way around. Because we had to compete against Coke, agreements, contracts. And it was the first time that grocery stores and retail stores were going from local and regional to national. I was there at the very beginning stages of when Walmart was now starting to expand and aggregate retail footprints so that you can you know, buy in mass, buy at a lower price point. And so I think Pepsi really gave me the fundamentals of sales, sales enablement, customer relationship management, as well as how to manage people. At 23, I had 13 grown adults with families that I was managing. And by the time I was 26 uh, and ready to go back to business school, I'd achieved a lot and learned a lot in, in a very uh, fast amount of time. So what, why did you decide go, to go back and get your MBA after that? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, for those of us who can think back, if you think about, um, well, one, one reason, only one reason, was uh, I was head down, very ambitious, working in Augusta, Georgia. A lady by the name of Candy Walls said, hey, you know there's another life on the other side. And, and I didn't know what she meant. She was training a bunch of district sales managers and territory development managers and she's graduated from Harvard and said, hey, have you thought about business school? I think you'd make a great candidate, really open to write a recommendation, whatever you need. And so as I began to do my research, I was like, oh, you know, the value of MBAs at that time was very different than it was today. It wasn't exclusive, but you just didn't have as many as you have today, nor as many programs. And so for me, I, I, I took the bite. Um, interviewed at a, a number of different uh, business schools, thought about the trajectory in terms of going from marketing to brand management. I got a better understanding of what brand management was. As I was interviewing at the schools, 
know, we would be with other folks that had graduated and come back to talk about the experience. And so not only did it help transform my thinking, but also transform my actions from marketing to brand management and what it was. And so that's why I decided to do brand management and decided to go to another HBCU called Clark Atlanta University. And then from there, you worked with some great brands. Yeah, you know, in, in, in doing your research, you know, you, you will find at that time, it was either PNG or tech, because that was at the, the precipice of what was about to happen to tech. A lot of uh, business school students were going west to an area called Silicon Valley um, or choosing to go into brand management, get traditional brand training. And so for me, I decided to choose Procter & Gamble as an intern. And then from Procter & Gamble, graduated B school at Clark uh, and then went to work for Miller Brewing Company, which just shot me up in terms of the, the insights, the learnings and have an ability to manage a budget of about $25 million, manage a P&L, uh, and manage a brand. And so those are the fundamental things that took me from sales, one specific category of marketing, to actually brand management, which gave me all the different classes of trade that I used to sell to. Now how I get the product and pull it through within those classes of trade. And I mean, you other great companies, Whirlpool, Dell, Sears. So just like amazing experiences. Yeah. Every great move was a building block. So from Miller Brown company to taught me about brand management, um, you know, for all my life and pretty much it worked at Pepsi. Uh, and then with the Miller Brown company, I saw I worked in beverage, food and beverage. So I got the opportunity to work in brand, but at a manufacturer, uh, Whirlpool. And what Whirlpool gave me was ability to look across the portfolio, understand how to go from a manufacturing-based uh, brand to a customer-centric base by building a brand and doing more advertising and understanding the architect of that brand. And it allowed me to get into corporate strategy, which I looked across to value the mid-tiered and the premium. And so really gave me a great understanding in terms of portfolio management from a brand perspective. And then I got the call of a lifetime, uh, you know, at the time, I was not even in tech, but in each of those assignments, I was always the first to raise my hand for a tech assignment, like building the first website for Fosters, uh, being on the team at, at PNG to basically make the pitches to why they should invest in this thing called the internet. And even at Whirlpool, convincing them to go and build a, you know, a website today to even talk about the products uh, that they were typically used from a retail standpoint. But at Dell, I got hired there to bring strategy to a performance-driven organization. And so what that meant, I managed a group of econometric modelers. And so that got me into data and insights, demand generation performance. So everything that you're doing on the Markham side, as it gets released in the world, how many calls and clicks does it generate? How do you then you know, get to people on the configurator? There was no platform at the time, it was called a configurator. It was in-house built. What's the performance of different channels and how do we go back out? How do we optimize the spend of a half a billion dollars? Not only quarterly, but intra-month, intra-day, and sometimes intra-week. So that gave me the foundation in terms of how to market and build a business within a digital economy. Then went to Sears, um, you know, primarily to help transform Sears. Uh, I was responsible for all of that soft lines marketing. And there, think about this Amazon thing was in the groceries. It was going to happen across and go into other categories. And so for me, it gave you an opportunity to you know, take a traditional retail business, understand the P&L. Now, how do you transform the spend from a marketing standpoint to where it's much more productive it gave you a higher in terms of what we call marketing return on the assets. And so that's what I was able to do. But unfortunately, I was flying back and forth from Austin, Texas to Chicago for two years. Mm. My family yeah. was in Austin at the time. And uh, as I was trying to get back to Austin, because my wife at the time I said, I'm not doing any more winters in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to make a decision. And so as I was trying to get back to Austin, 
um, a, a headhunter said, hey, have you thought about Ogilvy? And I said, Ogilvy? Um, I'm a little over, you know, be starting out in account management. Uh, I don't, I used to manage agencies. I don't think, you know, I would be a great fit. She says, no, 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 no. They're starting this group called Ogilvy Culture. I'm sorry, Ogilvy Consulting. And you think this is in 2008. Uh, financial crisis was about to erupt. Uh, real estate, everything. Ogilvy was one of the first companies to go in the consulting business. Uh, sounds kind of normal today, but if you think about Ogilvy, they're known for, for creating pretty pictures and then putting those pretty pictures in television, radio, out of home, and print. And so on the consultant side, companies were starting to think about, well, how do I do, you know, digitalize across the entire uh, enterprise? And then how does that impact my marketing spend? How does it impact in terms of how do I go to market? Well, if you look at my breadcrumbs in terms of my career, I had all that. And so I joined, you know, packed up, moved the family to New York um, so that we, you know, Ogilvy is like the Harvard of advertising. You got to go if you get that call and um, packed up, moved the family to New York and started working at Ogilvy and started really getting involved in a lot of things that impact digital. Living in Austin, I was on a front row seat when social was just starting to pop. I saw Zuckerberger at South by Southwest. I saw Twitter guys at South by Southwest. All these guys are running around and launching these little known companies that were from the far, far west that was trying to make it across to the rest of the world. And so that really gave me the inspiration. So as I went and joined Ogilvy Consulting, uh, went back and forth between Austin and New York with the different innovations that were happening at South by Southwest. And that played in terms of how I provided solutions and services uh, for my clients who were trying to digitally transform uh, within our Ogilvy consulting practice. So talk about, because it seems like that was a, a good learning experience in terms of how you started to generate a lot of research and insights mm -hmm. as it relates to some of the things you're working on now. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the opportunity at Ogilvy was that I went into the CEO's office and, you know, keep in mind, it's usually like a church and state, meaning people on the advertising side usually try and get to the brand side, not the brand people trying to get to the agency side. And so, you know, the position that I had was like, hey, I've, I've you know, managed a number of different agencies, both on the general market and the multicultural side. And I thought the model was broken. And, and so I, you know, opened my mouth, took the challenge, meaning that, you know, at the time, John Seifert, he was the president CEO of Ogilvy North America, said, hey, if you think it's broken, help us fix it. And so, you know, in addition to doing my day job, I spent about six to nine months trying to help bring recommendations as to how to fix the agency model at that particular time. And came back with the report out, did some interviews, learnings that I had from the client side. And he said, hey, that's great, but that's not the way our business operates. He says, but I got another assignment for you. He said, if David Ogilvy were here, what would the agency look like? So if you have an imagination of uh, Mad Men was just starting to you know, come out, because I would say to people, you know, I work at Ogilvy, they're like, what is that? Uh, my mom didn't know what I was doing, but when she watched Mad Men, she goes, oh, I, I kind of get it now. And so if you, to me, that was a question of a lifetime. It changed my trajectory, my career, uh, my family, um, and, and everything that, I, that I'm working on today. Because if you, if, if, and this is part of this is about the education piece. But those that don't know, um, you know, advertising marketing uh, in the 1950s and 60s was a part of this phenomenon where as a part of the, the, the industrial revolution, essentially. When the industrial revolution happened, a lot of uh, companies went from local, maybe they got to regional. You had the, the milk cart, the milkman, you had the general store, and you had the independent grocer, not even a grocer at the time because refrigeration from a technology standpoint wasn't there. 
And so what came out of the Industrial Revolution was the ability to mass produce. Part of that came out of that with the war, you had the manufacturing of these big things, the production line, the technology, that was Silicon Valley back in the day, just the manufacturing. Where in part of that, as people came back from the war, you now had what they call a middle class. Before you had socioeconomics, but mostly America pre-war was predominantly white, 92%, according to the census at that time. And so as as people came back and you had this huge uh, growth at the time, a lot of it went to a lot of people job-wise, getting these jobs and buying these houses. Now you have to feed them. You have to distribute products beyond the region. But what that also created as as an effect of that was this idea of creating a brand. TVs came in the 1950s. So you got TVs to distribute what we today call content. And so as part of that, um, these people had to now make ads. And those people that made ads oftentimes made those ads for the 92% of America at the time. And so when you get a question about you know, what would David Ogilvy do, given you know, the change in demographics that's happening. And so the question was really about how do we change our model to future-proof our model? The world's changing. That's a new America. 2010 census had just been published um, at the time. So you go from, you know, I've been with Ogilvy for about two years, got that question, had to go back and look at the history of America, not the history of advertising, because the history of advertising is a direct reflection of America. And so when you think about how did those agencies form, today we call them general market agencies. Before that, they were mass agencies, meaning the business owners that created uh, services to serve these brands that were starting to now market via the black box, they had to have someone to make the ads, to make the radio, make the brand ad. And so these were were mass agencies as as they were categorized. But then you had the rest of the 8% of America. And the rest of the 8% of America, they were black, predominantly black. You didn't really have the, um, you know, the Hispanic population. It was predominantly Cubans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans on the East Coast. And you really didn't have the, the Mexican population as subsegment within the quote US Hispanic um, because that, that phenomenon had not happened. And so what they then call were ethnic agencies. They were separate and they were not equal. And mainly because America was a very segregated place. And so if you think about getting that question and going back, you said, hmm, when did America start changing? And it wasn't really until the 1970s census that you had, you know, I think you had gone to like 10% of the population. So all the way up from the origins of the US to 1960 census, 92% of the population was white. The other 8% was diverse. And so when you go back and you look at that, you're looking at how America was formed. So in the 1960s, a lot changed, a lot happened. You had Brown versus Board of Education. You had the Vietnam War. You had obviously the assassination of amazing leaders. Um, so as we begin to come to the 1970s, America was at a turning point. Well. How do we integrate our schools? And then how do we integrate our businesses? Because for the first time, Blacks now were starting to get educated in an integrated society and starting to also graduate from college. And then because of the laws and government, you had to hire the, the, and, and have a diverse uh, workplace. And so as a result of that, you had another uh, emerging middle class, very similar out of the industrial revolution. So that's for context setting in terms of the significance and the heft of that question. And so from there, about a year in doing my day job at Dogavi Consulting, uh, partnered and co-founded uh, an organization within Ogavi called Ogavi Culture. And at Ogavi Culture, I got the opportunity to start a new agency model. And in that model, um, 
we were charged with how to help companies accelerate growth. The reason for the acceleration of growth is because oftentimes a brand would hire an agency and they would have a general market agency. And now as America's changed from the 1960s and 1970s, 80s and 90s, you have a multicultural agency because now you have Hispanics, Blacks, Asians, LGBTQ, um, and a whole host of others, including women and veterans. And so with that, what you now have to do is think about how do we accelerate growth with this population that went from like 8% to like 40%, which is now right around 47 to 48%, nine out of the top 10 cities, a minority majority. Gen Z is the first generation that's minority majority, meaning all babies born from this day forward are gonna be 51 plus percent black and brown. And so for companies, if you look at it like, oh my God, my strategy, my structure, the systems, everything that started in the 40s and 50s that was created for commercial application was designed around white dominant majority population so now every construct that exists today, business practice, how we practice business has to be reframed, as we like to say, but it has to be reimagined in a way to where it's now inclusive of this new America, of this new majority population that we like to say in some circles. It was this report that your team was creating was that something that companies were leveraging to hopefully market themselves to diverse population sets? Absolutely not. <laughs> and mm. what I mean by that, you know, change is hard. And when you think about, we were introducing this practice amongst general market practitioners who had been selling their goods and services since the forties and fifties, grew up with these brands, grew up with these industry associations. And on the other side of that, you had the multicultural agencies. And those multicultural agencies are like, wait a minute. What is this thing called cross-cultural? What is this thing called polycultural? And so one of the things that we did in Ogilvy Culture is that we redefined the problem state. And so we moved from American, well, predominantly American companies um, asking us about general market and multicultural to now cross-cultural and polycultural. What most people didn't know at the time, believe it or not, was that we think about attitudes and behaviors from an insight standpoint, as defined by social scientists. I didn't make this up. They actually started in the 1930s and they published this. There are five stages of culture, mono, multi-cross, poly, and trans. And so America and service providers who provided services for marketing communications were stuck. They only sold monocultural insights and multiple, multicultural insights. So our agency practice, Ogilvy Culture, we introduced this idea of cross-cultural and polycultural. And that's how we came up with a study that we did called the Cross-Cultural Index. And so what it showed was like, what amount of money companies were leaving on the ground because they were only within this, you know, the insights of mono and multi and the opportunity that was abundant and afforded to them if they chose to go beyond mono and multi and go mono, uh, cross-cultural and polycultural insights. All right, well, let's talk about Reframe. So the company that you're building now, is it you know, what, what was behind that decision of starting your own company? Yeah, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, John Seifer, Donna Pedro was the chief diversity officer at the time. You know, I think everyone is your founders, uh, C-suite executives, um, people just coming up in their careers. I challenge everyone to like write different chapters or different acts within your career. Um, for me, I was on act two. Act one took me from like, you know, 16 to 26. Act two was 26 to like 36, not 38. And for me, in doing the research um, and understanding how big and massive a problem it was, 
Um, there were people who were providing these services that were really not changing, not solving for the problem. And that was, how do I accelerate growth? How do I drive change and drive a much more inclusive customer experience and inclusive employee experience? And so for me, I was ready to take on a much bigger ambition. How do I modernize the practice of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion? Because this is a practice introduced in the 60s. Now America and the world had changed from a different graphic standpoint. And how do I modernize the practice of multicultural marketing? I took it to um, our CEO, John Seifert, and he says, hey, man, very ambitious. You always come like with a challenge, but this is where we're gonna have to like call a timeout because we gotta sell advertising. <laughs> Digital mm -hmm. transformation. Not quite sure if, if companies are, are ready. You know, we're like a gorilla, we're like a whale. You know, we need big, massive wins, not small to medium-sized wins. And so we made a decision for me to leave, but before I left, I wrote a book called uh, Reframe the Marketplace. Um, and that really was a launching pad uh, for my business called Reframe. And so for me, it was a way to memorialize a lot of the great work that I had done uh, with great partners um, and had memorialized the new work that we were starting to do. So in 2015, um, I left Ogilvy after coming off a sabbatical to write the book. And in the process of me being a sabbatical and writing my book, I uh, met, met a gentleman who was about to go from Pepsi uh, to Verizon. And he had been following me and he said, hey, I think this could be a great you know, testing spot for a lot of theory and a lot of the work that, that I've heard you've been doing uh, at Ogilvy Culture. Would you come on a journey? And so that was like my... Um, my seed funding, <laughs> but through an actual customer, folks, not an investor, but an actual customer. And so- Which that, is how the majority of companies get started. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> through a real customer that pays the bills. Yes, <laughs> yes, not an investor. Um, and so with that first contract, and it was a large enterprise, Fortune 14, 15 company. Yeah. But that, was, that spoke to the power of, 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 um, of the work uh, that we've done. And the, and the impossibility in terms of where we could take it next. Well, let's fast forward to today. What is Reframe? So Reframe today um, is a, it's the first tech-enabled um, change management platform. And the reason that we say tech-enabled is because, you know, keep in mind the problem that we're solving for. Um, we restated the problem that, the workplace is two to three generations culturally behind this new marketplace. Remember we talked about the five stages of culture? Um, well, tied to that is data, attitudes and behaviors, which most people try to do when they're trying to change something. And so we removed ourselves in being out of the agency business, removed ourselves in terms of being strictly professional services. We're a service and software company. We intentionally lead with our services because we actually build the design for inclusive customer experience and employee experience. The technology takes that design, scales and sustain uh, that uh, what we, we design for either a customer outcome or employee outcome. And you made the successful transformation from being a pure services business into, like you said, tech enabled, it's software. So you're doing both. And I think that's something that many founders aspire to do is productize your service because services, you can only scale based on headcount or different parameters, whereas software, hopefully there's an endless you know, amount of scaling. So, so talk about, how did you get to that point where like, I think I could productize this in the process of actually building out you know, a software platform? Yeah, I mean, Look, um, for us, in 2015, when we were starting a company, you know, we started the company with the ambition of becoming a software, or using software to scale. So when you, you know, I tell everyone that's on the team today, had you started with us in 2015, 
you would have left within six months because everything was in my head. It wasn't productized. And so, you know, for me, it, it's, it's, I had to you know, work with these massive companies. So in, from 15, April 15 to December, we won Verizon, Wyndham, and Prudential, and United. Wow. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm running around there, like, with all this in my head. I'm trying to bring in, you know, consultants. And they're like, what do you, this is the way I did it in my last company. You know, that was an amazing learning. It made a lot of mistakes, to be honest with you. I think that year, a net margin was, like, 3%. Mm-hmm. Horrible had amazing revenue, but the fact that we didn't productize our services, meaning as people came in, they had the different ways of implementing the things we were asking them to implement. We knew we had to get it written and we knew that we had to get the product, our services productized. And, and the beauty around productizing it is that, you know, by year two, we had enough customer engagements um, to where we could sit, I could sit down and literally in, in 2000, so 15, 16, 2016, I was in so much pain and running my business that I'm going to sit down and, 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 and write the manual for how do you build inclusive experiences for both customer and employee. And so, and we had started getting employee engagements, right? Initially coming out, we were getting inclusive customer experience engagements, whereas 2016-17, we expanded to get inclusive employee experience. So we had both offerings. And so we developed a six-step process, three main components in terms of building organizational alignment, inclusive experience design, scale and sustain it. And you know, two steps for each. Um, and that's the beauty of being in the space of consulting, right? Most consultants, they productize their services, it's repeatable, the pricing is the pricing because you've had enough experiences. So it solves all these problems for most startups in terms of, hey, how do I know how to price it? Who's my competition? How do I make it repeatable? And so we did that from 2015 to 17. And so what we kept noticing, um, you know, if you subscribe to the Y Combinator, you know, build something that your users want, well, we were right there with our users and right there with our customers and what they were saying is like, hey, love this thing over here, but like, we don't have the software to implement this, to scale it. And we heard it from people that had, one would, one could argue, you know, unlimited funds. And so that's how we got into the software business. We had the mindset that we wanted to scale and sustain it, our scale up business, but we also knew that this thing here was like Panda Bills and high demand and we wanted to move that in terms of our model from now on just a service model but also software and so we did it the old-fashioned way and actually got a customer uh, that would underwrite the software build and partnership which is a smart way to definitely build it. Um, So we started out the conversation talking about, you know, trends in the tech industry as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and are we making any progress? So um, where are companies missing the mark primarily? I know this is like a, this could be a very long question, but the, um, but, you know, and and like, what are they, where are they missing the mark and what can they be doing differently to improve the situation? Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, at no fault of their own, some cases. Um, if you walk into a store, you see a brand and you're looking for cleaners, and you got those five things to help you clean, you got to choose from those things as, or go to another store, you're likely to find the same thing. And it works the same way with you know, the idea of solving DEI. Um, DNI initial uh, ambition was to go from this, you know, segregated workplace to an integrated workplace. And so that's how it started. So when companies say, you know, we want to do better when it comes to DNI, this is, oh, we want to do better integrating our workforce. Whereas on the outside, we're already at 51 plus percent black and brown. So as Generation Z comes in, you want to integrate? What are you talking about? Like, that's so passe. And so companies are missing the mark is because they're using the wrong app 
application to solve a decades-old problem. The app of DNI as a practice is not going to solve this decades-old problem. You have to build inclusive experiences where you go back and you look at your structure, your strategy, your systems, solutions, and your segments, meaning your employees. So with your company, what, um, what are the plans ahead? Like, where, 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 How do you define success? Yeah, I mean, you know, we took a very long road um, that most people would not take given the amount of capital that's in the market. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we took six years to validate our product, meaning services, and productize it, and then reinvested those dollars into building our software platform. And given the, all the things that happened in, in uh, 2020, we actually got a company called Restaurants Associates, RA, um, to partner with us to pilot our software. And so the thing that came out of 2020 for us is that we were able to not only do, uh, connect our service engagement with our software outcome. And so we had a pilot for them and we're coming out of that pilot, we're expanding it in partnership with one of their software vendors, meaning an APIs that we're gonna do. And so for us, you know, what looks ahead is that we wanna scale our business now, but through service and software, uh, we've got a lot of things that are happening in terms of new business wins over the last 12, 18 months. We've quadrupled our employee size, you know, starting from a small base. But that's what's ahead for us. And at the end of the day, we have to convince companies to understand DEI as a practice would not be enough uh, to save corporations. Uh, corporations now have to go on a change journey from a practice standpoint. And that has to be both from service and software. Got it. Now, some of the companies that I've seen uh, have success building a more diverse workforce is the founder is heavily concentrated on it from day one. Mm -hmm. so, so what advice would you have for founders as they're building their company on building a more diverse and inclusive culture from like the outstart? Yeah. I mean, one of the questions we often get um, as it relates to that, um, we sometimes ask CEOs and we're, you know, 10,000 plus employees. And this also works for, you know, the two founders or co-founders that are just starting. Um, when you're setting up your mission, vision, value statements, it can't just be the two co-founders, right? You, you got this idea, you want to blitz scale, you want to get your series A, B round, C round. Make sure that the people that you're wanting to hire are reflected in the room at the very beginning. So then when you do establish your mission values, um, statements, you have those people at the table, meaning you have a diverse group of other folks that you may or may not hired to help you think through that. So from the very start of your company, usually that's the barometer you use as to whether or not you know, they're cultural fit. Meaning if you only had two co-founders that were in the room thinking about those things, that's not inclusive from the start. That's somewhat exclusive, right? And so you have to bring in people around the table to represent a voice so that as you do take that, scale it, it also marries the people that you hope to one day have in your company. That's the first piece of advice that I get. And um, oftentimes with tech companies, what happens when they're you know, starting their business, they get us up until accelerator to go from the accelerator and then all of a sudden, they're hiring friends that look and think and act like them. And so that's, again, from the very start, bring a diverse group of folks in terms of who you aspire to have as your company. No titles or anything, but just help you think about that and how do you craft that at the origin of your business. That's great, great advice. All right, top three apps that you can't live without. Oh, my goodness. This is horrible. Um, Top three apps, I'll say ESPN, <laughs> huge sports, right? Yeah. I think the second app that um, I'm obviously reframe, uh, I check it just as much. And then probably the third one I'd say is uh, my calendar app. I hate to say it, horrible. 
believe it or not, if you look at the data, if you have a um, any data around your um, productivity apps, calendar is like right up there with email. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a question I ask all the time on this podcast, and most of the time I get my email, <laughs> my calendar. Yeah. You know, yeah. as a founder, it's like you live yeah. and breathe that yeah. because yeah. It's, you're not on time for your gazillion meetings every day. You're gonna fail, right? So, uh, any good book or podcast recommendations? I mean, the book I'm currently reading, um, I brought it with me here. I'm on, I'm on vacation. Is um, why do white guys have all the fun? Uh, it's a book um, that um, Richard Lewis. I read it at least once a year. If you haven't read it, um, it really talks about you know him making the first person, first black person, uh, to buy a or amass a one billion dollar company. Um, it was the first conglomerate. Um, didn't have to take the LSAT at the time to get into Harvard um, Law School. Um, worked his way to Wall Street, then went into, you know, the, the M&A mergers and acquisition. It's inspiring to me because, you know, for us, we're looking at a number of different ways in terms of how we want to scale. Uh, and not a lot of founders look at this until later stages, but we actually are looking at um, a merger acquisition, more, more of an acquisition piece. And so my early thinking was informed by this book. And it's really inspirational. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Hang with my daughters. We uh, went in and played tennis this morning. Um, you know, the things I like to do with them is, you know, we'll just go out shopping, believe it or not, uh, mm-hmm. thrifting. I'm, I'm real big because I know retail from my old days and just being out with them in New York City and just getting lost. That's awesome. Well, Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work that you're doing at Reframe, and obviously the bigger picture of what you're working on helping to, uh, to improve. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.